This week, a special program, Liberia's TRC said justice, reconciliation, and commemoration of the country's troubled history was key to moving forward. That has not happened. We visit a country that is dealing with its past, post-apartheid South Africa. They tortured me and kept me awake, tortured for seven days and seven nights, no sleep. 30 years since the system of racial segregation was ended, we look at reconciliation efforts in South Africa and ask what Liberia has to learn. There are enormous lessons from South Africa, some of which we got right, some of which we didn't get right. I want to see him walking down the streets of South Africa tomorrow. This week, Democracy in Focus comes to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm Anthony Stevens. And I'm Fatou Kamara of OKFM. Also joining us in South Africa are senior new narratives reporters Nimela Cyrus Hammond of Spoon FM and Joyce Lingwee of the New Republic. Since the end of Liberia's civil conflict in 2003, Experts have been saying that justice, reconciliation, and commemoration were key to healing the country's deep divisions and ensuring conflict never happens again. After hearing 22,000 testimonies, the country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to the same conclusion. Its 2009 report recommended a war and economic crimes court reparations totaling 500 million United States dollars to be given to victims, memorials in each of the 15 counties, and free education for children through secondary school. None of that happened. Most recommendations from the TRC were shelved. Activists and international leaders have pressured Salif where and now the incoming Boakai government to do more. This week, we visit a country that has implemented successful justice, reconciliation and commemoration processes to see what Liberia can learn. They keep the lights on all the time. You can see there's a quotation from me there, that metal board. Uh, they give you cold water. Like when I was here, they didn't allow us to even shower. We are at Constitution Hill once an infamous prison where black, Asian, and colored prisoners were tortured and degraded. It's now one of the country's most important tourist attractions, a look at a dark past that visitors can feel and see for themselves. Prima Naidu was one of the famous anti-appetite activists imprisoned here. He shows us into cells meant for 12 people, but stuffed up to 50. We slept on the floor. Uh, they gave us a mat uh, and, and, and three blankets, one blanket you use as a pillow, and you sleep with that thing. And we were cramped. They put about 50 prisoners in there. You're cramped. You stay there. They only open you in the morning to give you breakfast, and they lock you up again, and then they uh, give you lunch, uh, and that's it. Throughout the complex are scenes 
that speak of the indignities and humiliations the apartheid leaders used to splinter racial groups. Division was key to the small white minority keeping control over the much larger non-white population. They tortured me and kept me awake, tortured for seven days and seven nights. No sleep. They tortured me, tortured me all the time. The next year marks the 30th anniversary of the election of Nelson Mandela as South Africa's first democratically elected president. That momentous day ended 50 years of racial segregation under the apartheid regime. The apartheid state terrorized South Africa's black majority and discriminated against other non-white citizens. Black people had no right to vote and were confined to townships with poorly funded schools and few jobs. Before 1948, the area now known as South Africa was a British colony. Before that, it was Dutch. Both regimes committed their own injustices. In 1994, South Africa underwent a remarkable transition, almost overnight, to multi-party democracy, headed by leaders from the black majority. 30 years on, there's been little bloodshed. There've been peaceful democratic transitions. There are problems. South Africa is plagued by corruption, unemployment, and inequality, but still boasts as Africa's second biggest economy and in fields such as infrastructure, industry, and education. It is far more advanced than most other countries on the continent, especially our own. There's also a remarkable degree of racial harmony given the history. The political and business elite includes a mix of racial backgrounds. Mandela has passed on, but his wish for a rainbow nation is as close to reality here as it is almost anywhere in the world. Anti-apartheid leaders we spoke to said that's largely because of the efforts Mandela's and subsequent governments made to commemorate the horrors of colonization and apartheid. So the exhibit on to your right is known as Power and Punishment. Now this talks about the flogging that used to happen in the old fort in the hospital courtyard of the fort. The punishment was... Nsika Konfa is a historian and guard at the Constitution Hill exhibition. He's also a member of the Kosa Nation. Commemoration is very important for us and you know, for the rest of the world to understand why things happened the way they did and also to identify and recognize the people that fought for the freedom, fought against the historical injustices. In addition to a group of museums like this one, South Africa's marks its history in public holidays such as Human Rights Day, Heritage Day and Reconciliation Day. School kids learn their history and celebrate their different cultures. Why is it important for kids to learn about apartheid and the colonization in school? This is mostly important because when you learn about the background of a certain country or, or your own country and the background of your own ethnicity and culture and race, um, you are able to defy the odds and the hardships that come um, especially later on in life. And also, you know, 
it's it's very important that people you know want to live in harmony and they want to live in peace. Insika continues the tour of the women's section of the prison. If a female was found to be walking in the middle of the prison, they were taken straight into isolation. This was for an indefinite time. So now you can imagine an angry official banging the door on your inside isolation. Most of the prisoners held here had committed no crime. They were anti-apartheid activists who had been arrested simply for protesting for their rights. Prima Nadu was one of them. He's here today with his grandchildren. He says he brings all of them here to teach them the importance of forgiveness. Because we must not forget the past so that it never happens again to other people. That's why Mandela said never again must people be treated like that. Coming here every time and also bringing your family and talking to other tourists that will come here, what memory does that bring to you? We forgive it, but we will never forget. And the important thing why we won't forget because we don't want it to happen again. That was Prima Nadu, a former political prisoner at Constitution Hill Memorial in Johannesburg. South African and international journalists played a huge role in bringing pressure onto the apartheid regime. We wanted to ask how journalists could play a role in helping Liberia's reconciliation process. For that, Anthony, Cyrus, and I spoke with revered South African journalist Anton Haber. During apartheid, Anton was one of many white opponents of apartheid. He was a reporter at the anti-apartheid papers that ran the Daily Mail and then the Weekly Mail. How has apartheid impacted South Africans and the country's democracy? Well, enormously, because it shaped the society. Um, and, you know, although we talked about the end and the defeat of apartheid in 1994, what we realize now, 30 years later, is that um, we still suffer the scars of apartheid. This society is still structured by apartheid and by that history. The segregation, the separation of people, the geography of the cities that keeps people separate, the inequalities, all of these were shaped by apartheid and remain with us. You headed the Weekly Mail, a South African weekly newspaper and website that was critical um, of the apartheid government. It was a dangerous position to take and you were criticized for your role. Can you tell us about that period and why you decided to take that risk? We took that risk because we felt we had to take a stand against apartheid as journalists. I guess that from my personal point of view, I had privilege as a white person and that gave me some space to do things as a journalist in tackling apartheid. It was both very risky and very exciting. What was the exciting part of it? We had a very clear enemy. In a sense, you know, journalism is, is often complicated, right and wrong and left and right, and these things are often complex and complicated. But we had a clear enemy, and there was great work to do because they were constantly looking to suppress information. We were constantly trying to find ways to get it out. So a lot of it was about being creative, to find ways around the law to get information out. Liberia has not been able to commemorate the dead in South Africa. We see, for instance, you have uh, Freedom Day. We don't have it in Liberia. 
why could that be helpful for Liberia, you think? Yes, it's very important. It's part of, in a sense, rewriting the history. There are enormous lessons from South Africa about truth and reconciliation and the treatment of history and memorialization, some of which we got right, some of which we didn't get right. What can Liberia learn from the country's truth and reconciliation process? So the first lesson from South Africa is that getting the truth out is important and it's wonderful to offer reconciliation for those who want to reconcile. But the other side of the coin, dealing with those who are not ready to speak the truth and reconcile, needs to be there as well. Otherwise, it leaves scars in your society that will come back to haunt you. What is your advice to journalists covering justice and reconciliation process, especially across Africa? So that's a very interesting question. You know, the newspaper we talked about, the Weekly Mail, which I ran, was a paper that had a very strong position and point of view and attitude. When Mandela came out of prison and suddenly all the censorship disappeared, uh, we had to relearn our journalism and remind ourselves of some of the core values that become much more important in democracy. The, the important thing is to keep an open mind and to have a new openness. Thank you for your time, Eton. I hope that's helpful. Thank you very much. That was Anton Haber, former editor of the Weekly Mail, the anti-apartheid paper in South Africa. Another feature of South Africa's commemoration efforts is statutes of leading figures of the anti-apartheid struggle. Heading that memorialization effort is Dali Tambo. Dali is an artist and filmmaker. He's also the son of Oliver Tambo, one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement. Johannesburg's international airport is named for him. Oliver and his family led the struggle from exile, while Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu were jailed for 27 years. When I go to my father's grave, Oliver Tambo's grave, I often um, speak to him and my mother, Adelaide. And uh, on one occasion, I had said to him, look, um, you know, I do statues and in this whole country, there isn't a single statue of you, despite what you did in the struggle. And I'm going to do one. And that night, as I was dreaming, somehow he came to me and said, no, don't do one just of me. Do it of all of those who contributed to our struggle. It wasn't just me. So the next day, I thought about it and decided, you know what, I'm going to stop doing TV and I'm going to do this project. And we recently put in a statue of uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So it's now standing at 101 bronze sculptures, which makes it the biggest exhibition of bronze sculpture in the world. Dear Father, you did mention earlier in the interview, the airport is named in his honor. His footprints are everywhere, including in the ANC. He was Secretary General, then became President. It was a, a great thing that uh, the airport was named after him. I think for me, one of the important things is that it forces people who only knew about Madiba. My father never self-promoted. He argued very forcefully that uh, the world must know uh, his friend Nelson, his co-leader, was um, the leader of our struggle. And he promoted him everywhere. Um, if they tried to give my father an award, he'd say, no, give it to Nelson, give it to Walter. They're, they're in prison, I'm, I'm out. So, you know, I think it was... Uh, something which, had you not named the airport, Oliver Tambo Airport, a lot of history would have been lost. 
Let's talk about reconciliation because mm. uh, South Africa did have a different model, as some people would say, of reconciliation. The, the TRC, unlike Liberia, didn't recommend direct prosecution. Of course, there were some cases that were referred for prosecution, but mainly focused on amnesty and reparations. How important was that for South Africa, in your view? Reconciliation? Look, I have my own views. Okay. Desmond Tutu was my uncle. I, I loved him deeply. I thought there was a flawed process with the TRC. But then I also have to remind myself what my father would say, which is that we can't have a Nuremberg like after the Second World War because we are not victors. We are achieving our democracy, but not through a violent takeover. So we can't have a situation whereby instead of reconciling, we're seen to be attacking and prosecuting and, you know, etc. So I understand that uh, the process was a good one, but it was abused. It was abused by people not turning up at the reconciliation trial, lying. There has not been the expected social justice result as far as I'm concerned. Is that the flaw aspect of the TRC process that you've talked about? Yeah, I think it is. But it's also, of course, you know, um, what Joe Slovo, one of our leaders, used to call the sunset clause, which is that, okay, it's happened. Now, are you going to grow the economy, grow national unity, et cetera, et cetera? Or are you going to chase after revenge? And so it's a compromised reconciliation. The second thing I would say is that reconciliation implies two parties. I reconcile with you, even though I'm the victim, and you, the perpetrator and oppressor, need to reconcile with me. It can't be one way. Reconciliation, thirdly, has to be about the economic form of reconciliation. So if you still own the means of production, you still own the private sector, you still own all the land, and I have nothing, what does reconciliation mean to me as a poor man you, you highlighted what you call flaws of the TRC process in, in your country. What can Liberia learn from you with its own reconciliation process, you think? I think if Liberia wants to find peace, because apparently the purpose of reconciliation is peace, then it must try and build a consensus that says these are the forms of reconciliation that we want and they're not necessarily litigious. They're not necessarily about court cases. Uh, many of them are about repairing the ills of the past. It's very difficult for me to put myself in the situation of people who do seek justice. I just feel that uh, it can't be the end of the story. It can happen. It should probably happen. If it's the will of the people, then I would. I would commemorate not just uh, the good people and the good things that happened, but I would commemorate those atrocities with heritage monuments that children and others who maybe even live through them can go and visit that mausoleum or that heritage monument and be reminded of what the people went through and in some cases are still going through. That was Dali Tambo who heads a project creating statutes of South Africa's resistance heroes and is the son of anti-apartheid leader Oliver Tambo. 
As Dali said, one of the biggest issues for any country coming out of conflict is the question of justice. Liberia's TRC recommended a war and economic crimes court. Presidents Salif and Weah resisted calls to establish one. Incoming President Joseph Boakai is facing renewed pressure from activists and the international community to address the question of justice finally. One of the big claims of opponents of a court is that it would reunite conflict. We wanted to have a look at South Africa's experience to see what we could learn. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a model for our own, shared by famed peace advocate Archbishop Desimut Tutu. It found that 7,000 people had been killed and 22,000 were victims of gross human rights violations during apartheid. At Nelson Mandela's urge, the emphasis was on reconciliation. The first black government chose to pursue forgiveness over persecution and reparation over retaliation. Amnesty was granted in 850 cases and refused in more than 5,000, but only a handful of people were prosecuted, mostly because the outgoing apartheid regime systematically destroyed all records. 21,000 victims received far lower amounts than the 20,000 US dollars each that the TRC had recommended. Anton Haber thinks the TRC process had mixed outcomes. It achieved some of its goals. It was extremely healthy to give a voice to many people whose voices hadn't been heard. Victims, families of victims, were able to speak out and tell their stories for the first time and be heard. And that was very valuable and very important. In terms of, I suppose, repairing the damage, it went less far because a lot of what was recommended by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, such as reparations, never really happened. So um, that was a great pity. But most of all, actually, what didn't happen were the prosecutions. There were very, very few prosecutions. And that leaves us in this society with a problem around the rule of law. If you want to prosecute now senior politicians for corruption, they say, but you didn't prosecute that apartheid murderer, and yet you're coming for me. I was a freedom fighter. Okay, I might be a crook now, but I was a freedom fighter. But you're going for me, not the apartheid criminal. We absolutely have to remind ourselves and understand why there was such a need for Mandela to bring everyone together, for Mandela to prioritize reconciliation. But one of the effects was that some of the worst criminals of apartheid were never prosecuted and walked free. Prima Naidu, the anti-apartheid activist, also has reservations about the TRC process. Do you think that perpetrators of the apartheid um, should be prosecuted? The idea was that people must come to the truth and reconciliation and to talk and ask forgiveness. Some people did, but not all. Did you have the chance to interact face-to-face -face with your perpetrator, somebody who brutalized you, who beat on you in prison? Well, during, at the, during the time of the tears, uh, some of them, look, they like humans. Some of them were decent people. 
and they apologized. Others were arrogant and they refused. Have you forgiven them? Yes, I, I don't know grudges personally. Look, the TRC had its faults, great faults, but it was the best way to go forward. As Mandela says, we need to all put our shoulder to the wheel and we need to push it up the hill so that we can live prosperously. Most of the public critics of the TRC process now are the women who come to Constitution Hill every day to demand the reparations payments they say are owed to them. According to the government, 17,000 people received about 1,600 U.S. dollars in 2003, but the TRC recommended more money be given to more victims. We need to correct the wrongs of the TRC. Norma Rosa Bonassa is the leader of the protesters. She says her family is an example of the many atrocities that must be compensated. Because the, uh, the white uh, apartheid regime was doing the pass rate, they went as far as going and find my mother eight months pregnant. My, my, my father was doing the night shift. They raped her at night and then left her bleeding there. My father uh, w- arrived and found my, my mother been bleeding, no Marashia, who was talking now. Miscarriage, but uh, luckily she was taken to the hospital where I survived. In 1993, my brother was killed by a white uh, soldiers. Amongst ourselves, there are uh, men where their wife were, were raped in front of them. So we face so many things. We've been meeting different departments. The Minister of Justice, the TRC unit, they're even presidents. They only take our memorandums. They are saying they are they are coming, but they are not yet arrived. Thank you for talking to us. We are also thanking you for being interested. You have added in energy and you encourage us to do and fight for what is right for all the people. The South African government did not respond to emails seeking answers on the matter. In previous interviews, government officials have downplayed the legality of the protesters' claims. Researchers say the reparations fund now holds about 110 million United States dollars. But over the past five years, it has dispensed only about 5% of that. It's been an enlightening week for the new narratives team here in Johannesburg. I think what inspired us most was the generosity of South Africans in sharing their painful past. They genuinely want Liberians and the world to learn from their experience and enjoy the peace that they have been able to secure against all odds. We end today with music from another important part of the movement to end apartheid. In 1985, 50 global musicians came together with the protest song, Sun City, demanding their leaders to pressure the South African government to end apartheid. Young people around the world joined the cause. The apartheid regime gave in a few years later. We want to thank our donors 
the Swedish and U.S. embassies, and the American Jewish World Service for making this trip possible. We wish our listeners the best for the holiday period, and we'll be back in the new year with more democracy in focus. I'm Fatou Kamara of OKFM, and I'm Anthony Stevens of New Narratives. Thanks for listening.